Welcome to Silicon Valley Founders Secrets. My name is Mahama Nyankamau. And my name is Christina Ju Weaver. Our guest today is Dr. Kemet Jones. Kemet, welcome and thank you for coming to our show. Thank you so much for having me, Mahama. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's been a minute since our graduate school days at Columbia. I, I still remember how much fun it was working with you on projects at SIPA, man. I <laughs> recently reviewed your bio and I realized, man, I barely knew this man. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're having too much fun to worry about bios. I know, right? Too much, too much schoolwork and all, all of that good stuff. Our discussion today will focus on a very topical issue, which is COVID-19 and the general theme of healthcare. And I would like to share with our audience a little bit about your journey, even as we dig into uh, the COVID. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your family, and what inspires you? Sure. Yeah. So right now I'm in Northern California, internal medicine physician. I split my time between seeing patients in clinic and urgent care, as well as uh, advising on healthcare policy, state and federal. Uh, prior to this, I was a White House fellow in the Obama administration, where I uh, worked for Secretary Sebelius and worked uh, looking at issues of innovation at the National Institutes of Health, as well as tried to help uh, create programs for veterans who had healthcare experience to dive right into uh, civilian healthcare jobs when they came out of the military. Um, prior to that, I was uh, a doctor with the Marines. I was a Navy doctor. What inspired me to go into medicine, I think, was part growing up on a farm with uh, cows, hogs, chickens, all types of things, seeing that anatomy as we um, pretty much, uh, you know, harvested and and, and uh, did those things that we had to do to eat, as well as my mom being a nurse. Uh, my mom uh, graduated from nursing school when I was three, and I feel like she kind of groomed me to go into medicine um, because she saw that interest and excitement that I had, and she wanted to go to medical school herself, but then uh, decided that nursing school, given the time constraints and everything, would be better because she had already started her family. So that's kind of my journey. Like I said, starting in, in rural Michigan and making my way through um, training and education in the military, and then settling out here in Northern California. Wow, that 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 is that's 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 quite a journey, right? From <laughs> through New York to California, all of that good stuff. So it makes oh, yeah. me curious. Then, is there a link between the values you took growing up on the farm in Michigan and who you've become today? Like, what's the role of your parents, other mentors to who you have become today? I think so. I think some of the things that we learned on the farm, uh, you know, my dad sometimes, if there was an issue, would wake us up 5.36 in the morning and say, hey, the cows are out, right? And so <laughs> you had to go out there and, and no matter what, you know, get the cows back in, fix the fence. Uh, you had responsibilities, you had chores. Um, and you also got to see, I think, the the fruits of your labor. You know, we would have to plant things and harvest things. We had over 100 acres of blueberries. And you knew very quickly um, or learned very quickly that if you did your work now, you did your work today, you could reap the benefits of that later. And so I think later on in life, when I went to uh, college and I went to medical school, you know, which is a long journey, I went to law school. Uh, in those instances where I felt like, okay, you know, is this going to pay off one day? I knew that the time I put in immediately, whether it was studying, whether it was engaging patients, whether it was saving money, whether it was making smart financial decisions would pay off eventually. And I think that's uh, not just something that applies to me personally, but I think it's 
it's part of what we see our values with this whole idea of, of American of the American dream. You speak in values, and then I when I look at your background, you have a very impressive resume and a career so far. And I was very fascinated how you have degrees in, in engineering, public policy, chemistry, medicine, and law. What are the common values link all these fields together? Yeah, I think the common values is just a, a respect for science and learning, uh, a, a love of um, learning new things and, and seeing how things are connected. Um, when I went to uh, undergrad, I remembered asking the advisor because I knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was eight years old. Did I have to um, major in biology? And I was told, you know, you could major in whatever you wanted. And so for me, I loved math. I loved engineering. I loved to see how things were put together. So, and I figured I'd probably get higher grades in engineering than I would in biology. So I did engineering and pre-med. Uh, it was a combined degree program between uh, Clark Atlanta University and Georgia Tech. Uh, and through those experiences, I got to understand the organic chemistry side of things and then understand how things were put together with the electrical engineering side of things. I decided to do a combined degree program for medicine and law. Apparently, I just couldn't get enough of these combined degree programs, um, <laughs> primarily because I also, uh, from doing some internships, uh, really understood that I needed to not just understand the clinical side of things if I wanted to make uh, impacts larger than the impacts of seeing patients one at a time, but I had to understand how the whole system was put together. And I felt that understanding uh, law wasn't going to be something that I could get from looking at a couple of YouTube lectures. It was going to be something that I was going to have to sit in class and understand how uh, cases were presented and understanding how precedent was created, um, and then eventually take that experience and um, and apply it on a much larger scale. What led to me going to Columbia was I had did the MDJD program and then had my military obligation and served in the military and went to Iraq in 2007 and 2008. And when I was coming out in 2009 of the military of active duty, the economy had collapsed. Um, I could get a job as a doctor, but it was really hard to get a lot of these policy positions I was looking for. So I figured I might as well use the GI Bill. I, I knew one thing I could do was study. I'd proven that to myself before um, <laughs> and then used that to go to Columbia and kind of helped tie together what I felt was the last four years of my life, understanding things on the global scale, you know, from the Middle East and India and understanding how um, medicine and policy and international relations were tied together. And that's exactly what I learned at the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia. It seems all the knowledge and, you know, the studies have really prepared. Like, I was curious about what's your opinion, you know, um, in health, well, in healthcare and also the COVID. It appears uh, currently the most vulnerable and underrepresented population has really taken a burn during this pandemic time. And then what do you think there's the, the gap in our healthcare system, especially during this COVID time we have seen? Yeah, Christina, I think you hit the nail on the head. I feel like the COVID pandemic has shown that there are a lot of canaries in the coal mine in terms of gaps in our healthcare system. Uh, we had situations where you know, we have eight and a half million infections that we know of, or people that have been infected in the United States, uh, 225,000 people that have died. There's also these idea of excess deaths. You have some populations that, um, let's say like the African-American community were two and a half times more likely to get it. 
uh, four and a half times more likely to be hospitalized, uh, and in some instances, uh, more likely to die of COVID than you know other counterparts. And the same happened with uh, rural Alaskans and Native Americans, as well as um, uh, Latinx and Latinos. And so part of that is because of the structure of uh, the types of jobs they were doing in the um, in the economy. So, for instance, if you were an essential worker, if you were a bus driver in transit, if you worked at a, a grocery store, these kind of lower income jobs, you know, you had more exposure to people. Um, you were less able to, um, let's say, work from home, work remotely. And so they had higher exposure risk. Uh, in some instances, you had these populations that had less access to health care. You know, they were more likely to be uninsured uh, or underinsured. And in some instances, were more likely to live in. Uh, crowded rural areas where, or sorry, crowded urban areas where if one family member was infected, you know, if you only have one bathroom in the house, it's kind of hard to quarantine. If you have a couple of people that live in a room, it's it's kind of hard to separate. Um, so it not just exposed, I think, some cracks in our healthcare system, but cracks in our socioeconomic fabric uh, as well. You know, in terms of things I think we need to do with respect to our healthcare system, I think we need to, one, um, really invest in the type of public health infrastructure that we've seen other countries do that have really, I think, beat or contained COVID. Like if you look at Vietnam, they may have, mm. I think, maybe 800 cases in all. Whereas, like I just said, uh -huh. we have eight and a half million and we're the richest country in the world. Uh, if you look at South Korea and their contact tracing, you know, you have examples of countries that had a very um, robust um, national uh, leadership. They had a very um, robust public health uh, infrastructure, and they had systems in place, and they had a type of societal trust in which they were able to move very quickly at 100 miles an hour. You know, we still don't have a universal um, contact tracing mechanism here in the United States. You know, we still don't have processes in which people who can't quarantine on their own in every single state could be quarantined in some type of um, you know, government facility of some sort, let's say, you know, housing of some sort. So there are a lot of things that I think we could do, um, one, from the public health standpoint, and then two, from the access to healthcare standpoint, um, that hopefully we could do with a little bit more leadership and possibly a different administration. Yeah, this is the election year. And uh, obviously, you know, to change those infrastructure need the regulatory policy changes. So what do you think the regulatory changes need to happen in order to prevent the pandemic happen again? Yeah, so there are a couple of things I think we need to do. You know, one, we need to continue on this process of creating a rapid response uh, vaccine creation system. You know, I know that even in this administration, I can't say that everything that they did was wrong. There was Operation Warp Speed that poured a lot of money into the pharmaceutical sector um, and tried to make it so we could stand up these RNA vaccines, which admittedly has been done at a record speed. I mean, we're having vaccines within six to seven months of the pandemic actually being seen. Um, but even before that, I think what we need to do is have a stronger uh, global um, infrastructure and network and understanding and working together so that if something like this pops up in another country, like Wuhan, China, or something like that, we have the entire world very quickly um, going to that mm -hmm. area, finding out exactly you know, what the underlying characteristics of the virus is and starting from day zero or day five or whatever um, in terms of trying to uh, develop the vaccines, develop the global united response as opposed to day 90 or day, day 100, yeah. which is kind of what happened this time around. Uh, 
you know, I think we did this very well in the Obama administration with Ebola, right? I mean, if you remember, um, President Obama sent over uh, a, you know, stood up an entire medical unit uh, in West Africa and tried to very quickly get uh, in control of this. We just need that type of response here. Um, I think we also need to have another push for there to make sure that we have no one in this country who does not have access to health care. You know, one of the pushes that we have in this administration is a public option, making it so that everyone has uh, a means and a way to pay for the health care that they need. And I think we also need a better um, working of our research side and our clinical side. So, you know, as I had mentioned, uh, I think before we started the call, we need a mechanism where um, not just when things happen like this, but when people are experiencing uh, those, let's say, our regular medical issues uh, that they have, you know, whether it's um, some rare cancer or it's some type of uh, medical issue that hadn't been there uh, in the past, they can enter any clinical trial, any clinical study, as easy as it is um, to download a phone, uh, download a song on iTunes. We need those types of technological connections to basically uh, democratize people's access to the healthcare system. That's great. And also, you mentioned about uh, the infrastructure, and I'm thinking for the infrastructure change needs technology. And as we are living in the Bay Area, the Silicon Valley, you know, the, the center of technology, what do you, uh, and it's a home of innovation, uh, what do you think in the role of technology in solving some of the healthcare crisis right now? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a big role for technology. I know that, uh, I, I believe Google and Apple and some of the other tech giants, you know, they not only started to develop some of these apps very quickly to kind of help people understand what their exposure may be in an anonymous way. You know, they, I think their their phones would have like a certain type of chime or some type of um, uh, alerting system to say, hey, you've been within a certain amount of contact or distance from someone who's tested positive, linking all of those different connections. Um, but they've also demonstrated because of their structure that they could have a majority of their workforce work from home. So I think the way that technology can really help us is it can really make it so that there are more of these types of jobs, more of these types of um, economic structures in society where many of the things that we used to do in person, we could very quickly flip the switch and do them you know, in a distance and safe way. Um, and I think also working more closely with our healthcare system, you know, for many people that I've spoken with in tech, healthcare is a bit of a black box. You know, You have technology that kind of um, uh, naps at the edges of the healthcare system, but doesn't really entirely lock in. You know, we need more interoperability between one healthcare system and another, so that if you have, let's say, your medical record at one hospital and you go to another hospital, you can immediately, or that doctor or that healthcare worker can immediately find out everything that they need to know to make sure that they're treating you the way that they need to treat you as quickly as possible. I see. And how is it for um, during the COVID? How's your life impact? I mean, you you used to see patients, you know, face to face. Is it is it now you're seeing more patients through the you know video conference? Yeah, it's it's affected us in a lot of ways. You know, one, you know, it's affected that we have a six year old um, first grader who is doing distance learning right now, and that's been a challenge because, as I'm sure you're aware, a lot of little kids they need that socialization to really learn, right? So. They've had to make their adjustments. Um, and as you said in the beginning, many of our patients were mostly virtual and mostly remote. 
uh, in March and April, I'd say 75% of my patient encounters were over the phone, just like this. Um, and then we slowly started to, as we understood the risk profile of COVID more, uh, we got more testing, people understood the importance of masking and social distancing, started to see more patients in person. Uh, right now, I'd say probably 75% of my patient encounters are back to seeing them in person. But what it's done is it's created this space where many patients who would not have wanted to do a virtual call, you know, for something as small as a cold are saying, hey, you know what, I could actually stay at home, save the two hours transit. It takes the hour to get there, 30 minutes waiting in the waiting room, the hour to get back home and get everything that I need uh, virtually. And I think what it's also done for healthcare systems, um, and I'll give you a good example, is it's made it so that they're looking at and realizing that even some things that they would treat in the hospital, they could treat at home with wearables and certain types of devices that helps them understand what their, um, uh, what their patients, let's say, vital signs are at the house. Hopkins at Home is a good program. It's been in place for about 10 years and has been ramped up a lot in which some of the things that they would treat in the hospital, let's say basic heart failure or a chronic lung infection, they can treat at home. And they're dropping the cost of that treatment 30 to 40%, which is huge. And then people uh, feel more comfortable getting care at their house as opposed to being in the hospital. So I think it's causing some disruptions in the healthcare system that we've needed for a very long time. Yeah, I think I, I can relate to that. And uh, one of the projects that we did during our summer uh, entrepreneurship program was actually a telemedicine project to uh -huh. collect data for uh, neurological conditions. And yep. I worked on that project. So it looks like this uh, unfortunate pandemic would actually spare innovation in certain areas. Exactly. Like, yeah. It's fantastic. So I'm also curious about just another aspect of uh, the healthcare system and how a return to humanism might help make the healthcare outcomes better. Exactly. It's definitely not all uh, technology. I think what you find some doctors, especially in primary care, saying, um, let's say, for example, electronic health records um, and putting everything on the computer. That's made it so I can get a record from you know, the other side of town or I can get a record from a specialist uh, at the speed of light. I mean, actually, you know, the, the speed of fiber optics. But what it's resulted in, in many instances, is um, this thing called moral injury, where you have, I think, um, healthcare systems that have become more sophisticated. You've had regulations and other types of things, quality measures that have made it so that we are looking at all these different metrics. But in some instances, the providers are treating more of the metrics than they are the patient in front of them. And so what we need to do, I think, with our technology is we need to honestly kind of dial it back a little bit so that it's augmenting our care as opposed to replacing our care. Um, what we've seen with people now is even when we offer people this opportunity to do some virtual visits, they'd rather come in because they understand that that face-to-face, that, -face, that human interaction, that in some instances, that human touch means more to them than even the convenience of uh, sitting at home. So one of the things that I propose, let's say, you know, in healthcare at the highest level is making it so that we change the incentives that we do in terms of the ways that doctors are reimbursed. So right now, you know, we may reimburse the doctor and say, hey, if you hit these certain types of quality measures, we get your patient to get on this particular cholesterol lowering medicine, you know, then you'll have 
um, a better reimbursement than you would otherwise. Whereas in some instances, you could try to get group reimbursements so that the incentive is there so that um, instead of treating a patient for a particular ailment because you're trying to get them to lose weight, but you're actually having group conversations and visits with these patients so that you can teach them what are the proper ways for them through their diet and exercise, through their nutrition, uh, to take better care of themselves. So we're not just relying so much on the pharmacologic aspect of medicine, but we're relying on the conversational aspect of medicine. We're relying on the relational aspect of medicine so that people understand and feel as if we're taking the time to really care about and learn about who they are as people. And I think that's what we value the most when we come to our doctors. We value being able to talk to them and tell them the things that we may not even feel comfortable telling you know, our spouses, right? But once we've lost that, technology can never bring it back. I, I, I agree with you. And what is occurring to me is the fact that there are certain aspects of being human that cannot be replaced by technology. Exactly. We're providing a platform or some type of recommendations around training for doctors around the country, around the world, and how to bring in more of these human-centered approaches. What are some things that you would like to see going forward? I honestly would like to see an um, increase in um, the time of patient interaction with the provider by 50 to 100%. And the only way that we get there is to really change the way that we uh, educate physicians in this country um, and change the expectations that I think we place on physicians. We really don't give primary care physicians enough tools to form the types of relationships that they need to have with their patients. And I'll give you a good example. There was a study that came out a couple of years ago that said, on average, a patient gets to talk about seven seconds before the, patient, the doctor interrupts him. Um, and in many instances, yeah. even a 20-minute, um, let's say, patient encounter would on average typically only last about eight or nine or maybe even 10 minutes because you know, of face-to-face -face time. The rest of the time, the uh, doctor's on the computer or they're doing some other type of thing. They're trying to fill out something, right? Um, the only way that I think we're going to get to where we need to go with respect to this uh, supply and demand mismatch that we've had in primary care for so long is we really have to increase the number of providers that we have um, in the United States. The only way that we get there is we have to shorten the training pipeline. Right now, the training pipeline is about 11 years. So it's four years of undergrad, four years of med school, at least three years of residency, and in some instances, uh, five to seven years of residency, depending upon if it's some type of surgical subspecialty that you're going for. You can't really shorten it on the back end. So you know, in order to be a good cardiothoracic surgeon, you're probably going to have to do five years of cardiothoracic surgery. It's just going to take that muscle memory to do it. But in order to be a good cardiothoracic surgeon, you probably don't need four years of undergrad to do it, to be honest with you. You probably don't need four years of medical school to do it. Duke has a program where we did three years of medical school, and you either did a year of research, or like me, you went to law school or business school or did something else. So, you know, and this is going to take buy-in from the American Medical Association and a lot of other entities. But if we want to you know, drop the costs of healthcare, so it's not four or $500,000 on average to train a physician uh, and increase the number of physicians faster, we're going to have to shorten that training pipeline. And we're going to have to increase the number of physicians that we have so that, you know, you come in to see your doctor, it's not a 15-minute a appointment, it's a 40-minute appointment. And that doctor really gets to know who you are. Um, I'd say as one final thing on that, if you look at the way that the UK trains their doctors, 
um, they train them in six years, not eight. Um, so it, there are models for this around the world. This isn't some, um, you know, unique and, and crazy idea. It's done in other places. We just haven't tried it here uh, large scale. And I think we need to. I, I, I love those insights. Yeah. Sometimes you go to a doctor and it almost feels like a therapy session, right? You, you say everything you have in you, even not related to the condition for which you went. So thank you yeah. so much. There's another thing. Yeah, you just never feel you have enough time with a doctor. You yeah, don't. Because you spend no, you most don't. of the time waiting, fill out the form, talk to the nurse. And then when you get a doctor, they talk to you in a very short amount of time. They have to rush to the next appointment. Yeah, I, I don't like that model. And I think it needs to change. Yeah, cool. Just one other topical issue uh, that has been here is the issue of fires, right? And oh, yeah. I recently, even this this past week, had friends evacuate from Irvine in Southern California because of those fires. What do these fires mean for our health? Yeah, so there was a study that showed that people that had higher exposure to, uh, I think it's called PPM 2.5, or these small um, micro micrometer, microdiameter um, particles, which are 2.5 microns, about one, I think, 20th of the size or diameter of a hair follicle, um, were about 8% more likely to have serious complications from COVID. Um, there are a lot of other things that would say that they would have high risks of asthma, chronic lung issues, heart issues. Um, there were studies that used to say that, you know, if you lived in urban areas, if you lived in high pollution areas, um, you know, you would have a shorter lifespan because you would die of a heart attack faster. Those studies were done before we had fires that made it so there were some days in Northern California where we literally had the worst air quality in the world. Um, the fires are not getting lighter, they're getting heavier. Every single year, we are breaking records in terms of fires being larger, burning more ground. Um, so I think from a health standpoint, we're not only seeing the direct effects from people you know, being killed or being exposed to bad air quality and exacerbating underlying lung issues, um, it's also increasing their risk of having complications um, from things that are transmitted from a respiratory standpoint like COVID. Uh, and it's also causing some very serious mental health disruptions as well. I've had a fair number of patients who unfortunately would tell me, you know, either their house burned down or it was threatened to burn down and they're depressed, they have anxiety that's very hard to manage. So I think there are a lot of collateral negative side effects that have been coming from these fires beyond, you know, the immediate uh, life-threatening um, situations that arise out of them. We're not going to get out of this situation, I think, until as a country, uh, we're willing to accept and take global warming seriously. Uh, and we're also willing to, uh, I think, have our federal government work with the state to really get the funding that we need to do some of the controlled fires and other types of things that we need to do to lower the risk of this continuing to happen and worsen. And you mentioned about the mental, uh, mental awareness, mental illness awareness. And how do people, do you have any suggestions to people how, how they cope with the pandemic? You know, you mentioned people anxiety, depression, and some, you know, some of the issues come not just besides the physical issues we have, but also mental issues right. we have. Yeah, it's tough because I think humans, we are naturally um, beings that respond to touch. Um, I remembered a study a long time ago in med school that I read that said, you know, you could take a baby 
and you know feed the baby and do everything that you're supposed to the, with the baby. But if you don't touch the baby, then typically that baby will die, you know, before they're just a few years old, which is startling if you think about it. Or even babies that have seen less human interaction, less uh, you know, loving and caring from their mom, it causes neurologic changes in their brains, right? So, you know, not to say the exact same thing happens in COVID, but this type of quarantining that we've needed to do, this social distancing, this fear of being near each other uh, has caused unprecedented levels of anxiety and depression, uh, you know, and, and, you know, very seriously harmful thoughts. I think the only way that we get out of this, I mean, yes, part of it is treating the pandemic, but the other part is um, figuring out a way that we understand each other's rift. Uh, and I think a antigen-based uh, saliva um, COVID test that I think you can get the results back in 15 minutes. Um, and it's, I think, $5. So you can, I can imagine a situation where people can undergo serial testing, still wear the mask and say and find out, okay, you know, this family member doesn't have COVID. I don't have COVID. The risk is low. We can actually interact, you know, as opposed to have all of our interactions over Zoom. And I think that human interaction will help us heal some of these mental health issues that we've had. The other component is we just have to get our arms around this pandemic. Because the other thing is there's a lot of anxiety. People are afraid. They've had family members die. They're afraid of what would happen if they get it. So it really is this multi-pronged approach that we need, I think, to, to help fix some of the mental health issues that have come out of it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. And actually, I have a family member who is in the hospital and it's very difficult. You know, you can't see them. You can't go exactly. to the comfort them like your time. So, yeah. Um, now the winter months is coming up and uh, it's, you know, usually we talk about flu season. What advice do you give to uh, our audience? I think it's not just people in the U.S. and the people around the world, the audience are listening to this. Um, how they handle the upcoming winter months and what precautions do you recommend? Yeah, get your flu shot. Uh, I'm telling that to everyone. I, every single patient I saw this morning, you know, I definitely um, offered them the flu shot. Get it early. Uh, we don't want to confuse uh, the COVID-19 infection with the flu. I think uh, you both are probably aware. I think we had our first documented co-flu COVID infection in the Bay Area um, in the last few days. Uh, also, continue to wear the mask, continue to socially distance, continue to wash your hands because there's some studies that show that we're actually lowering the prevalence of other upper respiratory infections by doing these types of things, right? So if we continue to do these things that are protecting us from COVID, it's actually going to lower the prevalence of the flu. And if we get our flu vaccinations very early, that will continue to do it so that we're not having some situation where someone gets the flu, their um, immune system kind of takes that first hit, then they get COVID and then it takes another hit, and then it increases their risk of ending up in the hospital or worse. Thank you, Shane, for your advice. And I have, you know, you accomplished so much in your life, and you're doing, you're doing so much, uh, you know, things to help people and your patients and people around the community. I was wondering what's next for you. And this is an exact question and invasion. Today is November 1st, 2025, and uh, all your both dreams have come true and a dinner is held in honor and celebrate oh, wow. the success. And then you have been asked to give a short talk. What what accomplishment will you be celebrating? Yeah, I would be celebrating a couple of accomplishments. Uh, hopefully at that time, um, 
celebrating the, the continued good health of my family, uh, you know, celebrating um, an improvement in the healthcare system that my patients get to um, are utilized for their own health, um, celebrating hopefully being a role model for other people of you know, various backgrounds who you know, may see some similarities in me and them and, and you know, see my path and say, hey, you know, if this guy can do it, I can do it. Um, and then also making uh, the types of, I think, you know, national and global impacts that I do want to make in healthcare, you know, whatever that may be. And, you know, whether that's serving in an administration, whether that's in public office, um, I think there's certain things that, you know, having treated over 20,000 patients, having, you know, been in the military as a doctor, having, you know, worked in developing countries, urban and rural areas, um, I can use those, those experiences, use the, um, the stories of my patients uh, and better inform what we need to fix in our healthcare system. So I think that's what I'd be celebrating is having a better healthcare system uh, that serves people um, and takes care of them in ways that we've not been able to up to this point. That's, that's such an uh, encouraging vision. And I, I believe it will come to pass, uh, knowing you and knowing your drive. Kevin, I hope so. Such a fantastic uh, opportunity that we've had today to talk to you. And I know that you are still seeing patients even as uh, the day is going. So we'll, we'll let you go. And we look forward to hearing more about your success. And hopefully you can come back to the podcast in the future and then share more with us. Oh, I would love to. Thanks for the opportunity of sharing a little slice of the afternoon with both of you. Thank you. I'm the best. I'm the best. I'm the best. I'm the best.